and this court will be adjourned until the jury's verdict is reached. Brad Smith QC is a criminal lawyer. He advises and defends people throughout British Columbia who are under investigation by the police, charged with a criminal offense, or otherwise in trouble with the law. Brad has more than 20 years experience in the criminal law arena, acting first as a federal prosecutor and now as defense counsel. As Crown Counsel, Brad prosecuted a variety of federal offenses, from Fisheries Act violations to complex organized crime drug cases. As a defense lawyer, Brad has defended clients charged with a wide variety of serious offenses. He has also represented police officers who are the subject of internal code of conduct hearings. Brad holds both a Bachelor and Masters of Law from Osgoode Hall in Toronto and took silk in 2019, which is barrister speak for being designated one of Her Majesty's counsel, learned in the law. As a QC, Brad is recognized as one of a small group of senior barristers in the province. I caught up with Brad shortly after he concluded a case in which his client was found not guilty of two charges of first-degree murder. The trial, which was held during the height of the pandemic, lasted more than 150 days. Brad is easy to listen to. He speaks in a considered and deliberate manner. He's authoritative and, dare I say, professorial. We talked about his career, his practice, and the growing complexity of the criminal law in Canada. It's a surprisingly sunny evening here in Vancouver. This is episode 9 with Brad Smith QC and Dan Coles. I'm finally speaking with another lawyer, and this is Under Reserve. Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. You've got an accent, so let's just address that first. Where are you from and where'd you grow up? Well, first of all, let me thank you for uh, having me on the show, Dan. It's a pleasure. Um, to answer your question, I am from uh, beautiful Cape Town, South Africa. Came to Canada in 1987, but I've obviously still got the accent. That you do. Picked up. So without putting too fine a point on it, how old were you in 87? 20. Okay. And what brought you over to Canada? Um, I came over with my parents. They moved um, because... South Africa back then was in the midst of significant political turmoil. And um, the family moved over here and here we are. So you didn't come over here as a lawyer then? No, uh, I did not. I did all of my legal training at Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto. And what year was that? Um, so I did my uh, Bachelor of Laws from uh, 96 to 99. And then um, promptly decided that... Uh, the lure of the coast was uh, to be followed. And so I moved out to BC, articled here. The rest is history after that. Um, in, in, in 2009, actually I should get this right, 2007, I decided I was going to do a master's. And so I, I um, did a master of laws through Osgoode Hall Law School. Uh, in criminal law, and uh, graduated with that in in two thousand nine. But at that point, you've been you've been called to the bar for a decade. This this sort of a mid career yeah. tune up. Yeah, not so much a tune up as an opportunity to study criminal law at a far deeper level than you get exposed to at law school. You know, at law school, typically criminal law is a first year course. You you take it when you're you really know nothing, really. Um, you don't really engage with the material beyond the most fundamental uh, aspects of it. Um, and as a criminal law nerd from the get-go, 
it was something that I had been practicing by then for uh, almost 10 years, but I just felt academically uh, there were aspects of it that I was interested in that I wasn't going to get exposed to other than in a university setting. So um, Osgood uh, has a very strong uh, professional development program in which they offer master's degrees in, in a number of different subject areas. Uh, criminal law and procedure was one of them. And uh, what a, was a real attraction was that whilst part of the course was offered uh, in Toronto, and so it required some travel, um, the majority of it was done by uh, video conferencing um, in what was then a very sort of cutting edge uh, development, which is now, you know, completely commonplace. Um, it's funny, so man. It you're funny you mention that, Brad. My last guest, uh, a Mountie, uh, I think Inspector Sear, not a lawyer, also did an LLM in criminal procedure at Osgood. So, so I'm, it must be a diverse class if police officers yeah, and, and lawyers and maybe others are involved. Yeah, that's that's actually one of the strengths of that program, I think, is that it, it draws um, students from across the country. So we had people from Vancouver Island. We had people from Newfoundland and all points in between. And um, the student cohort, and, and that's the other thing, the cohort sort of goes through the program together. Um, we had police officers, we had uh, academics, we had mostly practicing lawyers, right. um, fairly evenly split between Crown and Defense, which surprised me. I would have thought there was more Crown. There would be more Crown, but there wasn't. Um, and uh, the courses were uh, put on in some instances by practitioners. And uh, as, as you know, like Toronto has, has a very rich um, source of practitioners to be able to draw from. Um, so it was a good program. I'd, I'd recommend it to anybody that's, that's interested in um, developing their academic exposure to criminal law. And developing writing skills because there's a lot of that involved too. Were you a, a, a criminal law nerd back in the '90s, starting your legal education? Did you go to law school knowing that criminal law was what you wanted to practice? I did. Yeah, I um, I was in another career before I went to law school, and when I decided to go to law school, I said to myself, "What's the end game here?" And the answer was, "I want to be a criminal lawyer." I'm going to be a lawyer. I want to do criminal law because that's what I think is going to interest me the most. And um, I think that is quite unusual. I think most law students have no idea what sort of law they might want to end up practicing. And that's yeah. nothing wrong with that. That's uh, quite normal. Um, but I, I certainly knew from the get-go that that's what I wanted to do. And there were some uh, people in my Osgood uh, cohort at the time that felt the same way. And very interestingly, um, with no exceptions that I can think of, they have all stayed in criminal law. So is your, were your articles in criminal law? Did you article with the yeah. government? I articled for a um, prominent uh, defense counsel in Vancouver by the name of Ian Donaldson, QC. And um, he, Ian's practice was uh, back then predominantly criminal law. He did uh, defense work. 
some extradition and quasi what we call quasi-criminals, so regulatory defense and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, my articles were predominantly in, in criminal law. So you're called to the bar then in what year? This is early 2000s. May of 2000. But you don't stay on with Donaldson. So you're actually starting your career where you are now, which is doing criminal defense work. Yes, although not uh, actually admitted as a lawyer yet. Right. Just an article right. student. Right. Um, and, you know, when you when you get called to the bar there and you want to get experience in court on a consistent basis, um, there really is no better way to do it, frankly, than to work for the Crown because you will be in court almost every day. You will have the resources available to you that you won't necessarily have available to you as a young defence lawyer. First and foremost amongst them perhaps being the collegiality of having people around you that you can tap at any time for a quick answer on a practice problem or a legal problem. Not to suggest that the, that the defence bar is bad in that way, that, that's not true, it's, it's, it's great, but um, you don't necessarily have that same degree of access. And then I think there's a little bit of, how would I put it? You know, going, going to speak to a senior crown about something is one thing, but calling up a senior defence lawyer to um, ask him a question when he's probably got something better to do. Right, sure. It's a little bit more intimidating. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I, I went and worked as a federal crown agent, which, um, for those of your listeners who don't know what that is, is, um, private law firm that does prosecutions on behalf of the federal government, um, in areas such as predominantly drug offenses, um, but also things like, uh, tax prosecutions or fisheries and oceans, um, that sort of thing. So I did that for a couple of years and then um, went in-house uh, to what was then the Department of Justice Federal Prosecution Service. Um, started out doing routine drug, in, uh, drug prosecutions, uh, buy and busts, um, dial-a-dopes, that sort of thing. Uh, progressed on from there to do some of the more serious uh, drug work, importations, uh, conspiracies, uh, drug labs. Clandestine drug labs back then were sort of... Just so what uh, year, just to anchor this, Brad, what year are we talking about for drug, drug labs? That would be around 2007, 2008, 2009. We were seeing a lot of them coming on online, certainly in the Vancouver area. They were, they were already quite commonplace down in the States. Um, but so we were seeing, we were seeing a lot of that and I just sort of ended up with a lot of those and became a bit of a go-to guy within the office for, for drug lab cases, had the uh, opportunity to work with some, um, very senior, very experienced, very good prosecutors, uh, many of whom have since gone on to become judges in, in some really high level complicated uh, drug cases involving organized crime. And um, then it, it hit me that uh, 
I wanted to actually uh, do defense work as well in my career. And um, at that point, I decided I was going to reluctantly, it was a difficult decision, but uh, reluctantly uh, resign and, and open up my own shop. And uh, here we are, eight years later. Just to, just to back that up, um, Brad, you were a prosecutor for the federal government or the federal crown. Right. What's the significance of that distinction versus being a prosecutor for the, the uh, provincial branch of government? That's a great question. So, um, as I mentioned, when I went in-house, it was then the Department of Justice uh, Federal Prosecution Service. It has since changed to what's known as the Public Prosecution Service of Canada which is um, not just a name change, it is a um, federal government entity that is separate and apart from the Department of Justice. And it was a change that was brought about uh, as part of efforts to bring a level of independence to the federal prosecution service that had not um, necessarily been there before, at least not in appearance. And so, uh, there's now a director of public prosecutions uh, who is a person separate and apart from the federal uh, attorney general and minister of justice um, and, and has autonomy when it comes to things like federal prosecutions. So back to your question, though, uh, what's, the, what's the difference? Federal prosecutors, um, the mostly do drug prosecutions, um, as well as those other areas that I mentioned that are within federal jurisdictions, such as fisheries, taxation, et cetera. Um, and criminal code offenses, um, so in other words, offenses that are not prosecuted under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act or the Fisheries Act or the Income Tax Act, um, Criminal code offenses are done by, prosecuted by provincial prosecutors. So for example, in British Columbia, it's the BC Prosecution Service. Now there is one exception to that, and that is in the um, territories where the feds prosecute everything. Mm. So um, you may find a federal prosecutor in Yukon territory prosecutes drug offenses as well as murders or sexual assault. Right, right, right. Whereas in Vancouver, a federal prosecutor is not going to be prosecuting a murder or a sexual assault ever. That would be done by the uh, provincial prosecution service. The role of a prosecutor. I mean, I, I know I want, to, I want to talk to you about defense work, but mm -hmm. in the courtroom, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of, you know, popular conceptions about what the role of the crown is or, or the role of the lawyers calling the evidence to convict someone. Um, and I guess maybe I've just said it. Is that the role of a prosecutor to obtain a conviction? Yes and no. The role of the prosecutor is to firmly prosecute the case in a way that is fair to the accused, which means that um, unlike private litigation, and when I say private litigation, I mean private parties, citizen A and citizen B suing each other, 
in, in public litigation where one of the litigants is the Crown, in the context of prosecutions, um, the law is that the prosecutor must, in addition to advancing the case as a litigant, um, they exercise a role as a minister of justice. In other words, it's not all about winning. Right, right. They have to do so fairly. And um, so to that extent, the role of the prosecutor certainly is to secure a conviction, but it's to do so in a way that is fair to the accused person as well as to the Crown. And that, the way that plays out on the ground is that it can affect the style of advocacy. It can affect tactics. It can affect um, really everything throughout the whole process. Well, it's, and, a con it's a concept um, of winning, I guess. Yeah. So the crown, uh, to, 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 to cut to the chase, the crown is not mandated to win, quote unquote, in the same way that the defense is. So to that end, how is the crown able to cooperate with the police to the extent that evidence is gathered and, you know, warrants and, and various other judicial authorizations are obtained? Whereas I think the mm -hmm. police very much are in it to win it with respect to collaring bad guys. Yeah. How does how does the I, before before I answer that, can I just back up to what yeah. we were just talking about? Which may which may best explain what I was saying. There's an old saying that the crown never loses. Yeah, you know, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but essentially the idea is that if if there's a conviction after a fair prosecution, the crown hasn't lost because um, the conviction is sound and it was fairly achieved. And conversely, if there's an acquittal after a fair prosecution, um, the system has worked and uh, we haven't convicted somebody who should not have been convicted um, because the case wasn't proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So in that sense, um, the crown never loses. And I think what I had asked you before that was how wearing your prosecutor hat with an eye to fairness, do you balance working with the police who, who, who investigate crimes and, and gather evidence and, and put packages together, who I think play by a different set of rules, which is let's go get some bad guys. We, you know, we see guilty people everywhere but we need help and and how and how does the crown balance maybe a slightly different perspective to the to the to the game or the administration of justice yeah that's a really great question um the answer at least in my experience in british columbia as a prosecutor was that if it's a complicated project type of case where significant police resources have been expended in um, the investigation. Um, there are high-level targets. There's a lot at stake, so to speak. Um, oftentimes in cases like that, there is a very real need for uh, pro prosecutorial input um, with respect to things like the obtaining of judicial authorizations or 
wiretaps, as they are often known. Although those would include things like search warrants or production orders. Um, and that is available uh, to the police, but the person that provides that service is not going to be the prosecutor who prosecutes the case. I see. And, and, and that's how they maintain that professional distance or objectivity. Because um, you can, I think, see the obvious danger in having a prosecutor um, prosecuting a case in court, which may rise or fall on the um, lawfulness of a wiretap authorization that he or she was instrumental in advising the police about. How does how does a file land on a prosecutor's desk? There's there's been a some sort of arrest or a takedown. People were put in handcuffs. Evidence was put into baggies and an evidence locker. Assume some sort of narrative events has been put together. H- how does that all come together on a prosecutor's desk? There isn't really one size fits all in terms of an answer to that. It depends. Um, it depends on things like um, whether it's a provincial case or a federal case. It depends on whether this is some prolific offender that's been picked up uh, again overnight and um, has a thick stack of files that are being prosecuted by one person in, in, a, in a prosecution office. Um, it depends on whether this is a report to Crown Council that may run to many thousands of pages where arrests have not been made, but um, charge approval has been secured and arrests are about to be made. Um, Prosecutors can be involved at all of the stages of cases like that. So where there's a guy who's what I'll call a low-level offender doing street crime, he may be picked up by general duty investigators overnight um, and brought before the court in the morning for a bail hearing. Before that happens, a prosecutor in 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 a Crown office somewhere is going to look at that file that's been sent to them by the police and decide, yeah, we're going to charge this guy, we're going to kick him loose or whatever we're going to do. Um, If they do charge him, um, you know, off it goes from there. But that could be simply a line prosecutor who deals with a particular file only because the accused last name happens to fall within the certain band of numbers yeah, yeah. or letters that, that are assigned to that prosecutor. Uh, in, in, in contrast to the other end of the spectrum where you're dealing with the very uh, complex project type case where you have one or, or in many cases more than one prosecutor assigned uh, in advance of a takedown so that once the arrests have been made, everybody hits the ground running and disclosure goes out the door. And um, the idea is that the defense will be put on the back foot from the get-go. When did, when did you move over to defense work? 2013. 2013. So Jordan came down when you had already left prosecution work. Mm-hmm. What, what you just yeah. mentioned there, um, can, you, can you explain what the Jordan decision is and, and how, how that impacts what you were just discussing? 
Okay. Well, you know, we could talk for hours about that. Could be a whole a whole show in itself. But generally (laughs) speaking, prosecutions have to run swiftly. That's Jordan, right? Yeah. So, at, at the most basic, high level response to that question, let me say this. Jordan is um, takes it, 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 it's after a case called Regina versus Jordan. It deals with the question of what constitutes unreasonable delay with respect to bringing somebody to trial. Uh, that question is engaged because every person charged um, has a right to be brought to trial within a reasonable time. It's a constitutional right under the charter. The remedy for a breach of that right um, can be drastic uh, in that it, it typically will involve a stay of prosecution um, or stay of proceedings, in which case uh, the case is effectively over. So um, in the wake of Jordan, um, there is a lot of attention all of a sudden on behalf of all of the justice system participants to address uh, Jordan issues, as they are sometimes called, and that is um, how do we move the case along through the system, whereas prior to the Jordan decision, uh, cases might have wallowed in the system and not gone anywhere quickly, and there was no real sense of urgency. The major change in Jordan is that there has to be a sense of urgency on the part of everybody to ensure that cases move along and that they don't um, become too long in the system such that they are presumptively uh, out of time and uh, the prosecution has to justify why it should be continued. And and how how does that work practically on the big complex project files? You mentioned wiretaps a moment ago when you have when you have a lot of evidence and a lot of moving parts and maybe confidential informants and maybe you're working with law enforcement agencies around the world, I mean, I'm just picturing reams and reams of, of paper and images and, you know, what what's the boots on the ground perspective of the workability of, of Jordan in, in the sort of complex crime that you work? Um, so I as you pointed out, had left the prosecution side of things prior to Jordan, but I think I can answer it this way. When I first started practicing, um, the complex cases then were not as complex as the complex cases now. Right. And the degree of prosecutorial strategizing or preparing in advance of charging wasn't as meticulous as it is now. So why that is significant is that the the constitutional time clock starts running when the charges are laid, not when the offense is committed. So um, the idea now is that by the time the charge gets laid in in a perfect world, the disclosure goes out the door. You're front-loading that work. Yeah, exactly. In theory. In other words, yeah, in theory and and and, and in practice a lot of times too. And it's it, from a litigation tactics point of view, it makes total sense because the prosecution can get its case organized and disclosure organized and and be ready to to drop the hammer. And then the clock starts running and 
when the accused has his first court appearance two weeks after he gets charged, the prosecution can say, um, we're ready to proceed to fix a date for trial. Um, what do you want to do? And, <laughs> you know, so that's that's the, the way in which defense is kind of put on the back foot from the get-go. Now, that's the theory of it. The theory doesn't always mirror the practice um, because sometimes that plan doesn't work out the way it's supposed to. Uh, oftentimes, the disclosure isn't as organized as it should be, or um, defense lawyers will identify areas where there are deficiencies in the disclosure and make requests for more disclosure. And they so just do that so. occasionally some, sometimes, eh, eh, Brad? Yeah, they've been known to do it every now and again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, at the end of the day, though, once the charges are laid, the, the, the clock starts running, and, and there's an incentive now for everybody to move the case along. How common is it for members of the defense bar to have been prosecutors in a prior life? Um, it, it certainly is not the rule. Um, I don't know that it would be an exception. It certainly is. It's not something I encounter very often. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people, um, and I know of several others, but I know of far more defense lawyers who've never prosecuted cases. Does it rub any of your former colleagues the wrong way? They changed allegiances? <laughs> if it does, they've never told me. Okay. <laughs> about, um, I was going to say, how about judges? You know, in the, in the um, w- when you first transitioned away from prosecution work, any judges surprised to see you on the other side of the file? Again, I, I'm being quite honest when I say I, I don't know. Um, not that they've ever expressed any any surprise. Um, yeah, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. I'm assuming um, your experience prosecuting files informs your ability to defend a case probably pretty drastically in the sense of understanding the prosecutorial mindset, working directly with police and investigators, um, you bring to the table for your clients uh, sort of a fuller understanding of the entire gamut of the criminal justice system. I, I, I think that is certainly true for myself. Um, there are many occasions on, on which I've been working through a file and thinking how um, how glad I am that I had the ability to do these cases from the other side, because if I hadn't, I would have missed certain things. And and that could be simply a matter of, as you say, the prosecutorial mindset. It could be uh, a failure to um, be able to unpack a complicated crown narrative and disclosure set and understand what the police call the, the, you know, the speed, flow, and direction of the investigation. Um, as a prosecutor, you you see that. Um, as a defense lawyer, you you need to be able to see that. And I sometimes think that if I hadn't had that prosecution experience, it would have been a lot more difficult for me to do that as a defense lawyer. What is the role of defense lawyer? 
you know, you, you talked about the role of a prosecutor. I, I'm assuming defense counsel, the role is a little bit different and you, <laughs> and um, one probably can't be as ambivalent about the outcome of a trial when you've been privately retained by an accused person. Yeah, um, I, I, would, I would describe the role of a defense lawyer as being to um, zealously advance every defense that is available to uh, the client within the scope of the law, with the objective being to, um, if not see the client acquitted, then minimize the consequence upon conviction. There's, I think, a probably a popular misconception that defense counsel are able to, to lie or cheat or misdirect for their clients. That's maybe more of an American Hollywood understanding. But if someone, if someone says that to you, I don't know, socially, or you read that in the paper, or you watch that in a TV show, I mean, what do you say to that, that defense lawyers you know, play tricks to get their, their clients acquitted? Well, uh, anybody who actually believes that is, is, is just wrong, frankly, that isn't the role of the defense lawyer. And, um, I certainly don't do that. And I actually don't know of any defense lawyers who do, um, defense lawyers like prosecutors have different advocacy styles for sure. Some are more aggressive than others. Some are more effective than others. And I've seen defense lawyers uh, engage in defense tactics that personally I wouldn't engage in because I don't consider them to be particularly effective. Um, but we aren't all cut from the same mold and uh, they may, I'm sure some do, many maybe, uh, feel the same way about the way I, I defend cases. Who knows? Um, so accused people in the criminal process rarely take the stand in their own defense. Is that, is that fair to say? I think by and large, that is fair to say, yes. So if, you're, if you are not telling your client's story out of their own mouth by putting them on the witness stand, in the courtroom, th through the course of a, a trial, or voir dire's in advance of trial, what are the tools in the defense counsel tool belt? So let me let me back up a little bit and say that one misconception that I've often encountered is the notion that many people seem to have, which is that trials somehow replicate or reproduce the reality of an event that has occurred in the world. And that's simply not accurate. Um, something happens out there in the world and an attempt to replicate it a couple of years later in a courtroom uh, is, is, in my experience, always to some extent going to differ from um, what actually happened. And that is because um, of a number of things. First and foremost, I think, would be the operation of the rules of evidence. 
And um, the reality is that sometimes um, relevant evidence is excluded from a trial because the cost of receiving that evidence is too high in the sense that it's overly prejudicial to the fairness of the trial, the fairness of the accused, basically. Um, and the cost of receiving it is too high because it, it has the tendency, if allowed in this case, to be allowed in another case and another case after that, and suddenly it's systemic and the system has become unfair. And, and the system mustn't be allowed to become unfair, and that's why we have rules of evidence. Accused persons historically, at least in our, our justice system, are presumed to be innocent. I expect what you're talking about fairness relates back to that concept. I expect the practice that accused people aren't obliged or expected to take the stand is also probably rooted in that principle. In the 21st century, is, is that still a, a doctrine and a foundational belief in the criminal justice system that, that anyone who appears before one of Her Majesty's justices is, is presumed innocent? I certainly hope so. <laughs> it's, been my, it's been my experience that the quality of justice in this country is very high, in my view. And I think that that is um, it's a function of a number of things, but, but one of the important reasons is because we do, we do, we do actually believe that people who are charged are entitled to a fair trial and are actually presumed to be innocent until they've been proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law as opposed to in the court of public opinion or the, 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 the mob of social media, to use just two examples. You think that's eroded at all? I mean, I mean, I'm aware of, without putting too fine a point on it, you know, movements related to, you know, believing accusers in, in just a whole bunch of different contexts and that um, to acquit someone is in, in some way saying you don't believe the accuser. How, how, how are courts today reconciling societal changes and, and modern notions of justice? Um, another great question. I, I, I think they are developing rules of evidence around that concern particularly with respect to, uh, obviously, sexual offences. Uh, there have been uh, legislative um, changes to the criminal code uh, to prevent the, the sort of um, attempts by a defence counsel that were manifest in the past, in the past to um, ask certain types of questions that are extremely invasive privacy of complainants, but of marginal or no legal relevance to the charge at hand. Um, people can agree or disagree about the extent to which 
those changes have been effective on the ground. Um, I know that defending persons charged with sexual offences is very challenging. Um, and I'm not saying that it shouldn't be, um, simply that it is in comparison to many, many other offences. And, and fundamentally, I suppose, this is a question um, which involves a balancing act and where you, where you fall on that scale will, will determine what you think about state of the law one way or the other. Charter remedies and accused persons' rights. When you read news reporting about investigations that have collapsed or persons being acquitted, often read as if it's police conduct put on trial. And that's the focus of the court's analysis rather than the conduct of an accused person. Is, is, that, is that a fair summary of how some criminal matters are disposed of? That the, the police screwed up, never mind what the accused person did? The trial of the police investigation can be a very effective defense tactic in certain types of cases, yes. Okay, that's a great answer. Let me ask you this. Sometimes police officers themselves find themselves in trouble with the law. Yes. And this is a practice area of yours to some degree, defending uh, police officers, whether accused of substantive criminal offenses or code of conduct type um, contraventions. Right. What is, what is the RCMP code of conduct and how does that manifest itself into a adversarial process whereby a police officer needs to retain counsel, criminal counsel? Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be criminal counsel. Um, in my experience, it very often is. The code of conduct uh, is just that. It's a um, code of conduct that RCMP officers, for example, are expected to abide by and if they do not, they can be um, subject of uh, an allegation uh, that they have to uh, justify their behavior or face sanction, career sanction. Um, what, what's a, what's a typical code of conduct if, if such a thing exists? Um, I'm not sure such a thing does exist. Some I've seen, you know, some codes of conduct are. Uh, sufficiently serious that they are also running in parallel to what's essentially a criminal code investigation. Right, right. Others, others can be extremely minor. Um, frankly, a typical one would be. I'm thinking about uh, abuse, um, uh, abuse of authority, or uh, arresting a person too aggressively, or. Um, mishandling evidence vehicle pursuits that uh, shouldn't be engaged in right. or making inappropriate comments in the workplace right um uh, mishandling of exhibits um misrepresentation in the um, presentation of applications for judicial authorizations um sexual assault drunk driving mm. um, these are all 
cases that um, I've seen across my desk. Um, so they range in severity, and it's 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 quite an eye opener. Certainly was for me when I first started doing this sort of work to get that sort of insight into uh, the reality that. Um, Police officers are just like other people when it comes to the types of sticky situations that they get themselves into, and uh, they need they need defence counsel as much as anybody else does. Quite frankly, I, I imagine it's an incredibly uh, awkward and humbling experience for a a police officer to be in the office of criminal defence counsel, facing allegations of wrongdoing. And there must be a, a certain degree of, um, you know, obviously denial if, if, if they say the charge didn't happen, but also just regret and humiliation and a whole gamut of emotions that someone who day-to-day enforces the law and gives testimony in court and um, now finds themselves on the wrong end of the um, prosecutorial stick. Yeah, you know, um, I often tell people that as a criminal defense lawyer, a major part of my role is to manage crisis mm. because the clients that come through the door, whether they are normal citizens or police officers, are typically in a crisis that may be the worst experience they've ever had in their lives. And they need help. And your job is to help them as a defense lawyer. And Yes, certainly sometimes um, police officers, you can tell, um, are are uncomfortable to find themselves sitting down and discussing within the cone of silence, the good, the bad, and the ugly of what got them into that crisis situation. But they really are no different in that respect from anybody, uh, because oftentimes these situations are... uh, involve fact patterns that are unappealing or, or humiliating or embarrassing, um, but they need to be explored in order to be able to give the proper legal advice and to manage that crisis properly for that client. But I have, I have discovered that police officers have a very good understanding and a willingness to engage with defense counsel once they are themselves the target of the investigation, so to speak. And I've often had clients who are police officers say to me at the end of the case, I will never look at an accused person the same again, and I'll never look at a defense lawyer again uh, in the same way. Because this process, horrible as it has been for me to go through, has um, brought brought home to me a greater understanding of what it feels like to be the target of the state action and to need somebody who is your champion in your corner protecting you. In your experience, can a police officer keep their job after they've been committed, or sorry, convicted of a criminal offense? Or is, or is that the end of the line for a constable, regardless of the severity of the criminal code offense? No, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the end of the line. But it's, it's I think, fair to say that... Uh, you know, being convicted of a criminal offense as a police officer would fairly fall within 
what could be described as a career-limiting move. What's the McNeil report? Um, well, that's another topic. <laughs> the, again, at the very highest level, it's a report that um, is now disclosable to Defence Council um, with respect to things like professional misconduct in the record of a particular officer and to the extent that it may have a bearing on um, the officer's credibility, for example, at the trial, um, that can be further disclosed and, and the subject of examination at the, at the trial itself. So can an officer with McNeil history come back from that? Can, they, can he or she still play a meaningful role in investigating and giving evidence in furtherance of a prosecution? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, uh, the the thing is, it depends on what the underlying conduct misconduct is. Right. I, I had perhaps the most bizarre McNeil report I've ever seen was was an officer who, in a uh, remote jurisdiction, had been found um, to have dealt with uh, a detainee by essentially tying the guy to a tree while he questioned him. <laughs> you know, so okay. That'll make you sit up a little bit straighter when you read that. Sure. And you wonder, I wonder what sort of facts uh, led to that happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there were some that, uh, that the officer felt <laughs> justified tying this detainee to a tree. So, you know, it depends on the facts that give rise to the report in the first place, whether they are going to be a game over type scenario in terms of to certain types of investigations or career wise. Do these um, clients come to you by way of um, union or uh, a police officer who finds themselves in some degree of trouble in your experience? Are, are they on their own to pick up the, the phone book? Um, the answer is both. There are certain um, offences that are, are so serious that a, that an officer will be on his own, so to speak, in terms of resourcing. Right. And so we have some of those and we have some of the others too. And sticking just to code of conduct for a moment, who's the decision maker there? I, I, I'm, I'm picturing um, cynical persons believing that it's all a game of inside baseball and that police officers, no matter how, you know, rough or inept or corrupt, um, are permitted to to linger in their in their uniform indefinitely. When when a uh, a code of conduct complaint is laid and and there's going to be some sort of quasi criminal hearing, who, who's the trier of fact? Depends on the level of the offence. Um, typically, the ones that I've seen have involved what's called, within the RCMP anyway, a level three conduct authority, which is a senior police officer uh, at the rank of chief superintendent who deals with, with that. Brad, I want to get your take on the uh, complexity of the current state of criminal law from, from a defense counsel perspective. You know, b- between the criminal code and the charter and the common law, there are an awful lot of uh, both protections for accused persons, but a lot of procedural requirements to get, you know, both uh, prosecutorial evidence admitted into court and for defense 
uh, to put forward, you know, various uh, critiques of crown theory and crown evidence. From your perspective, um, how do you keep your head above water when you're quarterbacking, you know, incredibly serious allegations, maybe on a multi-party indictment, multiple witnesses, reams of evidence? Um, you know, I'm imagining this takes a, a pretty pretty serious toll on your personal life, uh, professionally, can you, overwhelming. I mean, I appreciate there's a lot there, but um, how do you run large, complex criminal defenses in 2022? Again, Dan, that's a great question. Um, the question encompasses a number of areas, and I'll, I'll try to deal with each of the ones you've raised and let me know if I miss any at the end. How do you deal with criminal complex criminal cases in 2022? Um, well, I think the first thing I would say is that it's a lot more difficult in 2022 than it was in uh, 2000, for example. Um, the criminal law, and it's certainly not unique in this regard, um, but the criminal law is getting more and more complex all the time. And I, I, I don't think that's ever going to change, frankly. And it's, it's interesting if you look back at the criminal code um, from the 1970s versus the criminal code today. Uh, there's this thin little book in the 1970s right. and there's a really thick book right. in, in right. today. So, you know, there's a lot more law on the books. And of course, what's in the criminal code is simply uh, the statute, the, the case law that has grown up and continues to grow up around the criminal code is, is exponentially even greater than that. Um, so that's, I think, the reality that we that we have to deal with. Um, how does that how does how does that play out on the ground in terms of dealing with it? Well, the way I deal with it is, um, firstly, I don't really do anything other than criminal law. Right. Um, and and I'm not unusual in that regard at all. In fact, most lawyers I know tend to specialize in a particular area of law. Because I think that the days of being the generalist where you can have a sufficient level of competency across the spectrum of the various areas of law uh, that you are likely to encounter as a practicing lawyer are gone. Um, so the first way I deal with it is through managing what comes through the door in terms of who I take on as clients. Um, then, you know, when you're a, when you're a defense lawyer, fundamentally, you, if you're like most criminal defense lawyers, you're going to be either self-employed or you're going to be working for a small firm, small meaning like five lawyers or less. I am in the uh, former category in that I'm, I'm self-employed and I have a brilliant young associate who works with me and I have an article student and a very good assistant and that's us, that's the firm right now. But we're running a business and so you have to constantly recognize that it's not all about the practice of law. You have to practice law in a way that makes it sustainable for you as a small business person and, and sustainable in, in the sense that not only do you have to survive, you have to thrive. Right. That's why you're in business. So um, that raises a whole number of 
considerations, including uh, things like what clients do I take on? Because um, the reality is that some clients are more labor intensive in terms of things like client management um, than others are. Some have, have the ability to resource a file in, in ways that others simply do not. Um, and the types of legal problems that they present with is also significant because certain types of cases um, take far more in terms of resources and, and both time and, and otherwise um, than others do. So it's a, it's a fairly um, considered approach that one has to take in order to strike the right balance. You're uh, not doing a murder trial in Canada in 2022 in a week, right? No, absolutely not. It's not unless it's a guilty plea and right. then it's not a trial. But so, I mean, but 50 years ago, you might have. I, I don't know. But, I, know. But, I, I, I know of some more senior in terms of age lawyers who have said to me, yeah, I remember back in the day before the charter, we used to do, you know, a jury trial in five days. And, and, and that was a murder trial. Right. You know, um, I've just finished a non-jury murder trial that factoring in the pre-trial motions and taking account of COVID um, has took from 2019 until um, just a few weeks ago. And here we are in, in May of 2022. So, you know, those, ca those cases are um, massive in terms of scope and in terms of resource requirements, both human and financial. And they have a um, knock-on effect to other cases in the practice um, that that can that can be very significant. You know, it's not it's not for for no reason that some cases are called practice killers because they consume your your ability to to do anything else. And and so lawyers have found that. They come out of a big case and there's nothing left in terms of other work to do. And so they have to rebuild their practices. If they're fortunate, they will have been able to maintain uh, a degree of other practice at the same time. But, but then they need a strong support team around them, uh, both legal and non-legal, um, as well as in their personal lives. Because those types of cases can be all-consuming. And... Um, so there's the business side of it and operationally, how does it work? Um, you've got to consider that. The, the, another tactic is that you have to surround yourself with a good team, yeah. Again, yeah. both legal and non-legal. If you don't, you, you just become overwhelmed. In that case that I was mentioned a few moments ago, there were um, seven Crown Council for the one accused. I led the one defense team and I had three other lawyers working with me and on the other <clears throat> for the other defense team there were uh, five lawyers so you can imagine how um, intensive those cases can become in terms of resources requirements um, and and the management of a case like that is, is itself very labor intensive um, so it's not for the faint of heart, no. let's put it that way. 
No, and and I would I would um, having never been involved in a trial of of you know that spanned anywhere near three years, I would think the toll, uh, your family life, you know, your waistline, your emotional health. I mean, I think I think um, certainly the guests I've had on my show speak of a an emerging awareness of mental health and mental well-being issues for first responders. But uh, I can't help but wonder how many criminal practitioners who who stack trials like that, one on top of the other, um, are left years into their practice, uh, you know, in really dire straits. And whether that's because they've had practice killers and their their practice doesn't become viable anymore, um, or they've lost, you know, they've lost family and or relationships or their own sense of well being. I mean, it's a huge commitment to 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 orchestrate mm-hmm. hundreds of courtroom days. Yeah, totally, um, totally correct. Absolutely, you have to have an awareness of the need for maintaining yourself mentally and physically strong fit basically to to um to do these types of cases because otherwise they do tend to overwhelm people if not you know if if one case doesn't do it certainly 10 of them in a row are more likely to do it and if you do it over 10 years the danger gets even greater so um i and that's one of the aspects of team management you have to be able to keep an eye on people and make sure that they're staying healthy both mentally and physically um, and and recognize that when they are working as part of the team and and you yourself you know it's, it's like throwing a stone into a pond it just the ripple effect goes out it affects their their families it affects their spouses their children um, in, in many, many ways that you may not even think of or know about, um, but be assured that it, it will have an effect. Um, and, and you have to remain cognizant of that and be very uh, careful that every single member of the team is, is basically staying healthy. If you're talking to a law student today, you still recommend doing criminal, criminal defense articles? I love criminal law. I've never ever regretted the decision to focus on that. Um, it's been extremely rewarding um, on, on many levels. I would say if you have an interest in criminal law, pursue that interest and go wherever it takes you. You know, you know, you never know where it'll take you. You may discover that what you think is an interest isn't really, or you may discover that it really is your passion. And, um, you know, this is, I think, true of so much in life. Uh, you, you really have to follow your passion. Brad, thanks for your time tonight. Really appreciate uh, you sharing uh, with me a bit about your career and uh, the lessons you've learned. And I do look forward to circling back with you to talk about that uh, that lengthy three-year case when the time's right. It's been a pleasure, Dan. Thank you again. And um, if you invite me back, I'll come. Ha, okay. Next week on the show is author and retired Air Force Captain Kelly S. Thompson. 
Kelly spent nearly a decade in uniform before being medically discharged. She wrote a book about her experiences in 2019 called Girls Need Not Apply, Field Notes from the Forces. It was a fantastic read and covers a lot of important issues about the training pipeline for young officers in the military and the struggle women still face in today's Canadian Armed Forces. Kelly and I had a lot of fun covering these and other topics. Tune in next week for episode 10. Until then, I'm Dan Coles and we're under reserve.